0: A.M. American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to Episode 7, The French and Indian War. Though I'm convinced that independence was eventual for the American colonies, there were events that rapidly accelerated that occurrence, with the French and Indian War being one of those key events. Though as you'll see, it was not necessarily the war, but it's aftermath that brought the friction between the crown and the colonies to a head. The French and Indian War was really one of several fronts in the Seven Years' War, a conflict fought between England and France on a global scale, with armed conflict taking place on three different continents. The two great powers fought in India, mainland Europe, Canada, the Caribbean islands, West Africa, and in naval battles around the globe. It was arguably the first world war in history, In the heyday of the British Empire, it was said that the sun never set on the king's lands. In the Seven Years' War, almost every corner of the British Empire saw conflict with the French. But I will focus particularly on the American theater. Now, the French and Indian War is the name given to the North American Front because of the nature of the French alliances with the Native American tribes. The French, who held land in Canada since the late 1490s, allied with the native Iroquois and Huron tribes in Canada in modern-day upstate New York and Ohio. The English, vying for frontier land in the uncharted northwestern frontier, allied with the British colonists and a few Mohawk tribes from New York and western Pennsylvania. Now, the march towards war was a result of two major factors. It began with the signing of the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle in 1748. This treaty ended the War of Austrian Succession, which was fought mainly in Europe, but to a limited extent on the American continent as well. This was a theme with wars during this time. European conflict tended to spill over into colonial lands in some or all regions of the world. In this treaty, England and France were unable to resolve colonial disputes that had arisen, and thus conflicting claims on land lingered. The second ingredient was the French encroachment southward from Canada into the Ohio Territory. British observers feared that with this southward movement, combined with a northward expansion from Louisiana, would cause an encirclement of the English colonies and cut off their movement westward. They resolved that French expansion must be stopped, one way or another. It was at this point that George Washington, then only a young major in the Virginia Colonial Militia, received orders from the Virginia governor, Robert Denwitty, to begin negotiations with the French. In October of 1753, Washington carried a letter from Denwitty to a French outpost in the Ohio Territory, staking the English claim to Ohio. Washington's letter was flatly refused by the French, and he was sent back to Williamsburg without incident. The French would not so easily give up the Canadian and Ohio Territory that they had occupied for centuries— especially with the trade, trapping, and fishing privileges they had enjoyed. Immediately upon his return to Virginia, Washington was sent north again, this time with different orders. He was ordered to lead a contingent of the Virginia militia to start settlements in the Ohio Territory and report on French activity. He went first toward Fort Duquesne, which is, of course, near modern-day Pittsburgh, and a major French stronghold at the time. When Washington encountered a small party of 30 French soldiers, he led a surprise raid on them during the night. His men attacked with bayonets so as to not awaken the French and killed 10 of them while capturing the remaining 21. This small skirmish, known as the Battle of Jumonville Glen, was the first battle of the French in Indian War. Washington then withdrew a few miles south of Fort Duquesne, establishing Fort Necessity, manned by 400 British and colonial soldiers. But Washington chose the fort's location poorly, and a month later, a force of 600 French soldiers with their Indian allies attacked Fort Necessity, and Washington was forced into his first and only surrender. Contained in the surrender agreement that Washington signed was a confession that he had assassinated the French commander as Eumonville Glynn. Because the document was written in French, Washington signed it without being able to read it, and only later found out to what he had falsely confessed to. This poorly thought-out confession and his poor strategic choices for the fort's location should remind us of the humanness of the so often immortalized Washington. The following year, after retreating and regrouping, Washington was involved in another attack on the French in western Pennsylvania, this time on Fort Duquesne. Again, the British effort ended in disaster. Most are probably familiar with the disaster of the British march on Duquesne, known as the Battle of the Monongahela, However, it would be generous to call it a battle. Almost 1,400 British, marching through the woods just miles away from Fort Duquesne, which is actually the site of modern day downtown Pittsburgh, were attacked by a force of French and Indians numbering anywhere from 300 to 900 men. Of the approximately 1,400 men that Braddock had led into battle, 456 were killed that day and 422 were wounded. The French reported 8 killed and 4 wounded, and their Indian allies lost 15 killed and 12 wounded. So, in short, it was not a battle. It was a massacre. Despite the loss, it was here that George Washington began earning his reputation as the great military leader that he is known as today. Following the death of the British General Edward Braddock and most of the British officers, Washington is said to have ridden his horse back and forth across the field, rallying troops to a retreat that saved many British and American lives. Even in the midst of a military failure, Washington is said to have led like no other man could. Now, after the disaster of Fort Duquesne, later in 1755, hundreds of British troops, American militia, and civilians were massacred at Fort William Henry by Iroquois Indians as they exited the fort under a flag of truce following a French victory. And for the next two years, the French enjoyed almost uninterrupted success on the frontier, winning every major battle, and defending their forts without major incident. Through all of these battles and conflicts, however, and, quite frankly, mostly defeats, the American militia remained committed to their mother country, leaving their wives and children in homes to fight alongside the British army. Now remember, this war was fought only 15 years before the Revolutionary War, but colonists still thought of themselves as subjects of the British crown, so much so that they would sacrifice their lives to protect English colonial sovereignty. But we will see how this loyalty was rewarded toward the end of this podcast. After two years of little progress and mostly defeats, the British effort received a breath of life when William Pitt the Elder, a prominent English parliamentarian, was placed in command of the North American military effort. Pitt called for a heavier involvement of the colonial militia, taking some of the burden off the backs of the English regulars and asking American colonists to defend their own lands. With this new strategy, he launched a massive campaign across the Ohio Territory in 1758, finally taking Fort Duquesne, which was immediately named Fort Pitt as a credit to the man who had orchestrated the winning strategy, and of course, later, it would be a town called Pittsburgh. The same year, the Fr- British took the fort at Louisbourg, another major French post. The British then invaded Canada, achieving their last great victory in 1759 at the Battle of Quebec, where 5,000 British troops took the city defended by about 4,500 French troops, colonial militia, and Indians. In this battle, the Marquis de Montcalm, who had taken Fort William Henry from the British two years earlier, was killed. After two years of successful campaigning along the northwestern frontier, the English controlled Ohio, New York, western Pennsylvania, and southern Canada. In Europe, the British-Prussian alliance saw even more victories, and the major fighting ended in 1760, with the war officially coming to an end with the controversial Treaty of Paris in 1763. But as I mentioned earlier, it was not the French and Indian War, but the the aftermath of the war that began the march toward the American Revolution a little over a decade later. The Treaty of Paris ceded all of Canada to England, leaving the British with an unobstructed path to the Pacific Ocean in the Northwest. The French would retain fishing rights off the coast of Canada, but they are much more interested in their possessions in the Caribbean because of the much more lucrative sugar economy of that region. In North America, the British had eliminated the threat of French encirclement and doubled their landmass. But on the other hand, they had a long list of problems to deal with. First, with the instantaneous increase in land, King George III had to figure out how to govern so much more new territory and had to figure it out quite quickly. Each moment lost was one step closer to anarchy, because the new territory was full of thousands of Indians and former French colonists, most of whom were Catholic, only making the situation much more difficult for the Protestant British. Without a strong assertion of British authority, these people had no reason or desire to respect the crown. This left the king with the question of how to deal peacefully with the remaining French and Iroquois tribes while keeping open the possibility of westward expansion in the future. King George, looking for a quick fix, passed the Royal Proclamation Act of 1763, which prohibited the American colonists from moving west of the Appalachian Mountains. I'll cover the Proclamation Act in in more detail in in a later podcast, but it was significant because it began a series of acts provoking revolt by the American colonists. Another challenge for the British in the wake of the war was Indian relations. The Huron and Iroquois tribes, which had been allied with the French, did not easily make peace with the British. Before the war, they had seen France as a counterweight to British power. In other words, if the French had to worry about the British and the British had to worry about the French, the Indians would be less likely to be bothered by either of them. However, with the French gone, native tribes felt much less secure coexisting with the British. They could no longer pit the two great powers against each other, and they now had to face a great power with a monopoly without any help. This was not a relationship destined for peace, to say the least. Finally, and most importantly, Great Britain's financial situation changed drastically over the 10-year period surrounding the French and Indian War. And here's one of the real rubs with the colonists. In 1754, the British national debt was 75 million pounds. In 1763, at the time of the Treaty of Paris, the national debt had increased to 133 million pounds. In other words, over the course of nine years... Britain's national debt had doubled. In addition, Britain had acquired more land, meaning only more expenses in the future. Left with the problem of paying down a massive debt, the Crown would pass a series of taxes on British subjects and the American colonies to try and deal with the debt. Of course, we know it was not very well received at all. Parliament and the King argued that the colonists should pay for their own defense that it was only fair for the colonists to pay increased taxes to the army that had protected them for the past seven years. On the other hand, the colonists prudently pointed to the fact that they had no voice in the levying of the taxes, and cries of taxation without representation became rampant. This is a topic for future podcasts, so I'm not going to go into too much detail here. But on the topic of taxation, I will backtrack for a moment to the beginning of the French and Indian War, For most people, it is common knowledge that the crown raised taxes following the war. What most people don't know is that even before the war, colonists were at odds with the crown over taxation. According to taxanalyst.org, in 1756, Massachusetts refused to collect any additional taxes from colonists to fund the war unless colonial governments were given authority over military officers. Taking it one step further... The Virginia House of Burgesses flat out refused to raise taxes on colonists to fund an English war with France. From these examples, we can see that American colonists had a long and conflicted relationship with taxation that stretches back to at least the middle of the 18th century. Now the French and Indian War was a time of great change for the American colonies and colonists. It was a time in which even more seeds of the revolution were sown and in which many of our founding fathers earned the reputations that would bring them to prominence a decade later. Americans also witnessed the change of the North American landscape, a shift in the balance of powers, and most importantly, the beginnings of a new direction for the 13 unsuspecting colonies on the edge of the new world. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson, and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes.